to come in, lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it, stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George, try and straight line it, get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton, oh, oh, oh. and goes straight on. This is quite appalling, this is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unqualified F1 Racing Podcast, a podcast by two gentlemen with absolutely no business being in this business. I am joined by my fearless co-host, Gerald Carter, who I haven't seen. Well, actually, I did see you physically in Denver not too long ago, but haven't recorded with you uh, in a length of time longer than the summer break. So we're back, and my man, we have an awful lot to talk about. How you doing, buddy? A great. Little disappointed. We uh, we missed our time in in Baku, but made up for it while you were out here with all your fellow suits at your uh, <laughs> at your work conference. So that's all right. You can talk as bad about them as you want. They're none listening to this. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank God. But you know, as many as many people said, you know, we felt like you know while we missed a a recap of Baku, it was such a predominant storyline that Baku was a boring race. We figured, well, fuck it. Why waste our time recording an episode just to recap something that nobody else was that interested in? Now, so we saved it for Miami instead. Now, Gerald, I, I do want to acknowledge the fact that our favorite word here at Unqualified is uh, a little a little A word called accountability. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to potentially tell the true story as to why we did not record an episode last week. If you'd like to gloss over it, that's totally fine. But uh, I wanted to pose the question. Well, fortunately, I had my publicist draft uh, a few notes just in case. Uh, prepared, was... You have a prepared statement. <laughs> I have some prepared remarks that I'd like to share. Uh, Please, floor is yours. No, look, as it, as it is unsurprising for any of those who have listened to more than three episodes <laughs> of, of this podcast, I am technologically illiterate. <laughs> and so when faced with the most minor of technological challenges, like a delay between the audio and visual uh, recordings, uh, I have zero solution to fix it. And so we pretty much just closed up shop because it was completely untenable. And so, uh, we saved it until I was back home on, on home soil with my, my typical setup. I was traveling. So that was the reason for the, the discontinuity, but no excuses by this point, I should be more, Ow. more agile, more flexible, but where I was staying, hats promised they had fiber and cutting edge speeds, and I was woefully disappointed. So my apologies. That's all right. That's all right, buddy. Uh, we all make mistakes. So glad to have you back. I honestly, I think, by the end of that recording session, I was debating whether there was like a fourth and fifth dimension based on the way that you were coming through. So I'm glad to know that, uh, you know, there wasn't anything existential going on. I felt like a time traveler, but <laughs> now we have traveled forward in time to Miami and I think we have an even better episode. The, the weight has, has really prompted the creative juices and, and I think we have a good one for the folks. So shall we, shall we dive in? Let's jump in. All right. Well, we're not going to spend a ton of time here, but we would be remiss if we did not touch on back Baku at all. So for those of you who did not recall after the long summer break and our missed episode last weekend, headlines here being another Red Bull 1-2 with 
Despite a Leclerc on pole to start the race, Perez for the win, fifth of his career, second at Baku, cementing his title. I would argue not just, not even the king of the streets, which kind of has a negative connotation if you think about it, like a little Roxanne action going on, but in particular, the king of Baku. Um, And really, interestingly, this was his fourth win off of a Leclerc pole matching Leclerc in total number of wins. So an unflattering statistic for Leclerc. Ferrari, however, finishing third and fifth. Alonso fourth with Stroll in sixth. Uh, and in keeping with Formula Formula One's approach to the race weekend, you know, they totally had changed up the sprint weekend, trying to I guess, find a better structure for these sprint weekends. And so they opted for the one qualifying, which was often talked about in the race preceding as a potential to then do the race qualifying followed by sprint. Wait, wait, sorry, 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 sorry. One practice, you mean not one qualifying? Yes, a sing. I'm sorry. Yes, they had yeah. two qualifying, a single practice session. Yeah, and that followed and script, by let's assign it to the day it was a single practice session that was on Friday. Friday, yeah. followed by race qualifying yep. on Friday instead of FP2. Right. FP3 was replaced by a sprint qualifying. Which then occurred be followed on Saturday morning. On Saturday. Yep. And then a sprint following that on Saturday afternoon. Yep. And then, as per usual, and, race on Sunday. And a sprint that had no bearing on the race order. Correct. Two separate qualifyings that determined the order for the sprint and the qualifying. Now that we have fully litigated the specifics of the weekend format, this was new, much debated. What was your reaction? Did you find it more or less engaging? Well, to the specific question of more or less engaging, I, I'll say this. I'm going to answer this as objectively as possible. My eyes were on the broadcast more than normal. So I think Correct. it's impossible in light of that to say that it was less engaging. Okay. So so objectively eyeballs on screen higher proportion of the time, minutes watched up. Correct. How about other factors like actual engagement and interest whilst watching overall like intrigue in the various events? And do you think it's overall good for the sport? So I think it's better than it's it's better, but it's not great. So I in general, here's a couple of things I'm anchored to. I in general don't care about practice and I really don't think anybody does. I never watch the broadcast for practice. I only ever watch the highlights and check the finishing order. Interesting. So I'm, I'm actually pretty aligned with the objective of reducing practice time. As a fan, mm-hmm. I just don't care about it. Then it comes inevitably to what do you replace it with? I'm in favor of the sprint race not determining the grid order. I like that better. Um, but it leaves me with the inevitable debate of then why should I care about the sprint race? To me... The sprint qualifying was not different enough from regular qualifying. And the sprint race was not additive to the weekend entertainment 
in any unique way. It, I, I wanted to watch it, but it isn't unique enough that I'm not convinced I wouldn't get quickly tired of it. How would you characterize the difference between the traditional Grand Prix qualifying and the quote-unquote shootout that, sprint qualifying? It, it, it's just shorter sessions two and three, that's it, and then a slightly tweaked tire strategy. But to me, that's hardly noticeable. I found myself the whole time sitting there wishing that they had just done a one-shot qualifying structure. 20 cars. Like everybody goes out alone, prep lab, fucking send it. Almost something more like yep, that. Yep, and and the order is randomized, and you, you get prep lab, and then send it, and that's it. Almost like a dunk contest one, where everybody's fixated on yep. that one lap. And you, mm. and you go one t- car on track at a time, so there's limited risk for track evolution, disadvantaging the late or early, early cars, and you just do one shot. It's prep lap, you get the soft tires, prep lap, one shot for qualifying. Like, that, that is the level of novelty they need to differentiate the qualifying for that from the normal race. Um, but you did find yourself caring less, I guess, about sprint qualifying and sprint race. Yes, relative to the old sprint format where the sprint race was consequential. So hmm. the, the sprint race got worse, but it's still better than three practice sessions. So the, the Grand Prix got... So relative to the other sprint qualifying structure, the Grand Prix got better, the sprint race got worse, but I still think they're both better than the alternative of having Friday just full of practice. I like hmm. something that I want to watch being on Friday. Generally. Yep. Interesting. Okay. What'd you think? So I would, first and foremost, I mean, I was a huge advocate of not having the sprint dictate the order for the Grand Prix yep. because I felt like it eroded the integrity of quali- the Grand Prix qualifying and, and, and just the nature of that relationship between qualifying and race order. So agree with that, first and foremost. Overall, I, I found, similar to you, I found myself just caring less about the, the sprint activities. And I also felt like it was the sequencing was odd where the, you had the grand prix qualifying so early and then you had this whole wedge of sprint stuff on Saturday. And then you were back to the grand prix on Sunday. And so it, it kind of lost that natural continuity where I wonder, and I think you could do it because it would mean that qualifying is at the same time that it is normally at, which is do your practice, sprint qualifying, sprint race, and then later qualifying. I guess the only risk with that is then you have damages during the sprint race potentially, and then they have to repair the car to be prepared for qualifying. And so they probably wanted to avoid that and keep the integrity of like the race qualifying consistent whereas i think you saw it in the sprint qualifying what sergeant damaged his car and then basically didn't like participate in the in the sprint race honestly i can't remember because there's just so much shit an hour two weeks later but so i think that's why they did it but the order just felt awkward to me and it was like oh qualifying was so long ago um well what but but what i will say first is it to your point of overall like value of lots of practice versus the the extra sprint qualifying and sprint i would agree with you practice in its current 
production and presentation, it is better, right? It's, it's obviously more engaging to watch racing than to watch practice, but I'm somebody who, at least in the background, I'll put on all the practice sessions and I'll have it going. Look, not that much happens, but it's interesting to me to see what you don't get is all of the story that actually happened in practice. For example, in this last weekend with Miami, Miami topped the time or uh, Mercedes topped the timesheets in one of the practice sessions. Well, that's only because they were like last ones out to do good it's sessions. Totally meaningless. But if you watched, but if you watched the whole rest of practice, you would realize that they were like struggling for pace the entire time. And so the end times are not indicative of where those teams look like they were trending throughout the sessions. But my my thing is with all the visualizations, with all of the data, et cetera, I feel like they could make practice far more engaging if they could better tell the story of like, what were the run plans of different teams and how did they stack up on specific tires? Because different teams are in different tires at different times. And if they could help normalize a lot of that stuff, I think they could paint a better picture of like what is going on in practice. Um, and in general, I like the buildup that practice presents and the fact that teams have a chance to optimize their car because people say like, oh, well, it gives a chance to these midfield teams. It's not going to be Red Bull that fucks up in one practice. It's going to be the the midfield teams that are on the bubble like Alpine and they fall off and have a shit weekend. But it's not like it's going to give like the high performing teams are going to be the high performing teams no matter what. It's going to hurt the midfield and backmarker teams more than anything. And that's oftentimes quoted as a, a benefit of the one practice model, which I, I just don't think is going to be the case. I think you're, you're, uh, you're probably an outlier in the level of nerd nerdiness you have in wanting to have technical details about the run plan in practice. Like I, <laughs> I think that the large majority of F1 viewers probably don't give a shit about that. That's like, you know, me wanting to know people's ball speed during their range session on a PGA tour, like golf court, you know, like pre a match, like on the PGA tour. Like, I, I just think that's kind of overkill. I don't know how the broadcast would ever assemble that information from the teams either. Like to, I mean, a lot of the, they have a lot of it but, already but, in the booth. They're just not ever showing it on screen but, or contextualizing so, so, team performance with that information. But, but even so, if, if you did do that, well, wouldn't you want to let that breathe and compartmentalize that into one day so that it could just be the practice day? So Friday is practice. I don't care how many sessions you have, one or two. Saturday is one-shot qualifying sprint race back-to-back, right? And then Sunday, and, and then that way you actually create some level of punitiveness if you wreck out in one-shot qualifying because the car's got to be ready. And then Sunday you actually do Grand Prix qualifying and the Grand Prix. I I guess where I differ is, so I agree with you. If you, if you. if you compartmentalize Friday as the practice session and did qualifying and something different on Saturday, and then you had the race Sunday, I think that would make sense. And I totally get your point of that is for like the hyper interested, but I almost think that like, that's what it's for. Like, are you bringing, I guess, <coughs> while you have more total hours of viewership, maybe on those sprint weekends, are you attracting more people to the sport because of sprint weekends? Or is there an opportunity, I guess, to deepen the relationship with your existing and particularly your most invested fans by providing 
by by making those practice sessions more insightful and more robust. Well, and so I think it's just a difference of like the mass appeal versus yeah. a deeper appeal. Well, that's that's why. So hardcore fans are more likely to watch on a Friday, right? Agreed. Which is totally. when you do what you're proposing, and that's why it's good for practice. So I agree with you. On the weekend, you're just trying to get eyeballs. And that's when I think people aren't going to give a shit about the technicals. And it's more about layering, layering together drama as continuously as possible. Well, and that's where I felt like you they almost overdid it with this format because then you had qualifying on Friday. Yeah. And honestly, as somebody who likes to play practice like in the background because I can do other things like, you know, presumably work. Um, <laughs> I almost felt like they were asking too much of me. Well, like when you when you when you sum up the total hours where I need to be directly engaged and particularly for like this show, right? Like needing to be cognizant of all of the things happening. I'm like, you're asking for seven hours of focused attention. And like, that's more than any other sport. And now you have 24 race weekends and God knows how many sprint week race weekends. Like, it's almost like, do you, do you exhaust the viewer? at that point. It's not more and that's where I found myself just not caring about all this. Like, dude, I can't care about all this shit. I think when you approach it from the angle of my job as a fan is ultimately to consume all of this in rapid succession, you're asking the wrong question. Like, it's not the only sport that has continuous coverage pre-weekend and over the weekend. Golf literally, I know I use golf for as a lot of examples, but like golf literally has the exact same problem. And so yeah, but most people just put on golf to take a nap that, okay. Right? Well, that is a really ill-informed take from somebody who doesn't know shit about golf. So thank you for <laughs> engaging in my example. I, I'm just saying that like, I don't think their aspiration is to make the passionate fan watch a hundred percent of the broadcast for every minute that it's on. I think it's to keep the passionate fan engaged throughout each day of the weekend in some amount and to then widen the funnel for the number of eyeballs you have on it. Generally, like, I, I think I, I I don't think capturing a hundred percent of your attention is the goal. I don't think you they ever will. Some weekends you're going to be busy. Who cares? Well, and it makes me wonder: is there a better way to caption attention, well, capture attention, and and you know, one of the things that you hear so much about the sport, or, or that is an undercurrent in the sport, is the idea that is almost impossible to compare drivers across teams because of the the importance that the different machinery plays in this sport. And so, I mean, what could be an alternative? I, one thing we've talked about offline is like, could you actually replace that instead of doing like a sprint race in their normal cars? Could you do some sort of cart race or like super cart race where everybody is, or F, you know, an F2 race where everybody is an equal machinery and you actually get to just see the drivers duel it out and and sort of the best man win and whether you give points or not like who gives a shit there's almost intrigue in seeing like i want to see who really is the best on any given weekend with a randomized grid or something like that what what's your thoughts to something like that or yeah. an, a different alternative i think it's honestly the most interesting thing that's out there you almost basically and and you wouldn't need to do this every weekend you could pick six weekends a year and basically do a spec race mini series as yep. the sprint race I think it's debatable whether or not you should assign championship points to it. I think if it's a spec series, you can't. I think oh. it, it becomes something else. But the intrigue of that is insane because now you create a scenario where Logan Sargent and Max Verstappen could realistically be battling out on track and think about all the debate and intrigue that would be behind that. Now, 
Like, is Logan really not as yeah. good? Like, maybe if he was in a Red Bull, maybe. He'd... And, like, the, the implications totally. on the whole, like, driver market debate. And yeah, man. I, yeah. It would create a lot of kind of alternative storylines. I think the biggest hurdle to getting it there is just the notion of having the drivers on board, right? Because there's this whole dynamic, like, especially from, like, the uh, like half the grid would love this idea and half the grid would hate this idea. Right, like yeah. Max, w- more than anybody, it's would bifurcated in the top half and the bottom half. Yeah, right? so like you'd have to get the drivers on board to, you know, because there's some risk or potentially some benefit, right, to their persona and their talent, but especially for the guys in the top cars. But I, but let's be honest, F1 of all sports is a hyper meritocracy, where yeah, on any lap you see the statistics of how they're performing, and so I would almost think of any kind of professional you, sporting group of athletes, they would be most amenable to it because it already is a meritocracy by and large. Are F2 cars spec series design? They have strange- I think there's some minor modifications that you can make, but they're largely like consistent, yeah. So like literally just pick weekends on the calendar where F2's racing on the same location, which there's at least six of a year, and just through the inventory of their cars produce essentially 20 spec series cars and run an F2 race on the same track layout. Like exactly that would not be that hard. And then so easy. It doesn't detract from the cost cap Yep, and it brings something totally new and different versus what feels totally repetitious to the Grand Prix. And think about what a one shot qualifying session would be like to watch when everybody had the same equipment. That would be crazy. Well, and you could do it immediately before because immediately same. It's the F2. So you could do like everybody's got one fucking lap. You qualify line up on the grid Let's do this thing. And, like that would be so cool. And the drivers would be like, you know, you're not paying me to drive two different cars and switch my brain on from one technical setup to another. And to that I say, if you want to find another job that pays you thirty million dollars a year and is this much fun, then go go find it. Be happy to there's quit. About a mil- yeah, I'm sure about there's a million guys who fucking replace back- you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, dude. Like I Gerald, I think we need to write this into a letter, send this off. I, I like now that we've workshopped this, I, we t- I know we talked about it offline, like you mentioned, but now that we've workshopped this a little bit, I actually think this is kind of a brilliant idea. Well, we come from two totally different ends of like the viewership spectrum. Yeah. And I feel like we're pretty well aligned here of that would be fucking cool. And and I can't see what F1 corporately, what their opposition would be to it because it's financially very viable. If anything, the teams love it because you're not putting parts at risk in in the lower, you know, tier qualifying and spread the check for a couple of extra, you know, an extra F2 car here and there. Like. Right. And and it promotes F2, which is mm. is huge. Um, you could almost have you could almost have like feature appearances by. I, I don't know exactly what the rules that you would structure would be, be previous year winner or it could be like you know, you're coming into this weekend, whoever won last weekend or like the top three drivers from the, like the podium from the weekend before joins the grid, whoever's leading in the champion, whatever you'd want to do. But yeah, something to like almost help provide that like crossover element of the driver development, people who are on the bubble, potentially breaking into the sport. How do you get more exposure to them as well? Here's a question. If we did do this for six races in a mini series this season, which driver do you think would win the mini series spec, the spec mini series championship? I mean, it it's probably obvious and biased, but there's no person who sits in a car or a simulator more than Verstappen. I, I ta- Verst- I'm taking Lando. 
You're taking Lando. Yeah. Oh, I mean, but another another sim guy. Here's the thing. I think Lando would be more motivated to perform in the spec miniseries because of how shit his actual car is. It's mm. like, this is my only opportunity to build my stock. But also what you would see is by it not being their Formula One car, wouldn't what would they care? What what would any of the drivers care for going to the absolute limit? Pride. And if they fucking bin it, they bin it. But like this is more than in a race, more than in qualifying, the drivers on the limit. Yep. Yeah. They have no time for caution. And it's the only thing you're racing for is the pride of knowing car like on equal equipment, I can I can beat these guys. Yeah, it's your true like bragging right one to one like, dude, fuck that race. Yeah, you're in the you're in the Red Bull or in the past you're in the Mercedes. Like, no, I beat you in the head to head. And maybe what they could do is they could award constructors points, which is a little counterintuitive. But maybe what you could do is you could give points to the team because obviously you still have race strategy at play, but you don't give points to the driver. Or no, 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 sorry, or inverse, you give points to the driver, World Drive Championship Mm. points to the driver, but none to the team. That now that would be more interesting. I, I can see that. I think inherently I have an aversion to, to wait it for properly. a non-consistent yeah. car or, or series, but I like that more. I, I like excluding the constructor piece given the financial wind tunnel compensation we, involved. I think I think we beat this up enough. I think we got a really good thing going. We don't need to let this thread die. Should we put a should we put a memorandum together? Yeah, let's put a memorandum together and send it to <laughs> Stefano and uh See if he has some sense. Honestly, no, we don't need to send it to them corporately. We just need to find a way to get somebody, some Instagram influencer who's going to be on the grid and get interviewed by Martin Brundle. We need to plant it with them and just get them to say it live on the broadcast. It needs to be more of a grassroots thing. We need like, we need all of the social platforms to to join together here. We need a petition. We'll send it to Venus and Serena. We need like change.org. It's just like, like, this is supposed to be for like U.S. politics. I'll send it. I'll send it to King Richard and he'll send it down the line. Yeah. I was going to say Serena's uh she's front and center a lot. So I think we should uh, get it to her. Maybe Bezos can pass it along. Or maybe, or maybe we can get Jackie Stewart to just, to just hunt, (laughs) to hunt down somebody famous and plant the, plant the ad adverb in there. You can put it in the right man's hands. I literally almost mugged Roger Federer. All right. Um, All right. Well, I actually found that to be a very fruitful conversation, far more uh, thoughtful than when the the show notes uh, alluded to. So that's awesome. I I think we should carry that forward. Hopefully they listen, but fuck it. Probably they won't. uh, And they'll continue to butcher butcher the weekend format for nothing more than the superficial fans viewership. Uh, But with that being said. (laughs) Ended on a high note. Thank you, Gerald. Yep. Uh, so with that, we should turn to the antics mid between the race weekends and who else other than Mr. Danny Rick should we highlight? Uh, he, he had a, a active Instagram account between race weekends, appeared at the Met Gala, uh, relatively moderately dressed, I would say. So a little disappointed in uh, his failure to sort of push the fashion envelope as is per the usual for the the Met Gala. Um but what's your take on sort of the current the current state of of Danny Ricardo's role and career? Well, first off, let me just say that I'm glad that we're talking about Daniel Ricardo and not Lance Stroll for once, which is a pleasant <laughs> pleasant surprise. Um 
you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. You're probably going to be disappointed in this this perspective from me, but I, I'm not really in the mood tonight to come down on Danny Rick. Um, I I I know that I spent the entire season last season predicting he would race an Indy car, but uh, to me, the content I saw from the Met is he's living his best life. You know, I hear rumors that Red Bull is undoing all of his bad habits in the simulator. I, look, objectively, do I think he's going to get a seat at a top team again? No. Like, Maybe he'll evolve and he'll decide that he wants to join a mid-tier team and maybe he'll say, F it, I'll go to Alpha Towery because I think there's a decent chance that Nick DeVries isn't going isn't to survive the season. And if that's the case, hell, maybe they'll throw Danny Rick in the Alpha Towery. And and if he comes in and immediately starts beating Sonoda, then they might think twice about who replaces Perez. Like, there's a lot of optionality. And I guess my whole thing is, and I, this I, this isn't a bit like I genuinely commend him for just putting himself around good people and a successful team and just being opportunistic. I think that's a decent way to navigate like hard times in life in general. So, um, yeah, I I guess all I'm saying is like good on you. I'm kind of happy for the guy if I'm totally honest, and I bet he's living a lot more stress free than he used to be, especially the last two years. He definitely looks like he's having fun. And if if his primary goal was to take a year off to sort of recalibrate, then I think to your point, it was the best move possible, right? To to in essence join the best team on the grid and be surrounded in that environment while your intention was to not be in a car. Absolutely good decision. That being said, I do not know that it is the most fruitful path to continuing an F1 career as opposed when to you what? look joining Haas instead of Hulkenberg, right? I mean, to be in the car to then come in and go and, and show people, wow, he's still got it. He's besting this driver. Yep. You know, this is a better situation for him, whatever. I think that lends itself better to getting back in the car. Now, granted, Red Bull has going to have the data. They're going to know how he is performing in the simulator. And if compared to the likes of DeVries, he would actually be a better performer. Like, sure, they're going to have all those statistics and be able to make that decision. But absent of that, like, it would be hard for me to say that I trust Daniel Ricciardo back in any car versus somebody who's like in their first year and going through those natural rookie growing pains. I just, I find it, very unappealing his language about well i'm basically only want to join like a top tier team when your last several seasons were total shit you didn't earn that so you need to at some point earn that and while red bull might yeah. gain confidence in the times that he puts up in the simulator i don't know that you gain that by being a promotional do, face and sitting you, on the sidelines do you feel like lando norris has earned a, t- a spot at a top team yeah, because he's consistently how, in the how car. Many, how many Grand Prix has he won in his career? I mean, none. But how many is Daniel? He's, he's in won? a car. How many? He's is against Dan- another driver that's perceived to be a top driver. He beat the same person that you're talking to one on one. I mean, what's the comparison here? Yeah, I mean, but Danny Rick won eight Grand Prix when he was a Red Bull. I guess my point is, he has already earned it at another stage of his career, and I could, I can see why in his head. If if I had to, uh, the 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 road diverged in the forest and one path was another unfamiliar team with an unfamiliar car setup in Haas at the lower end of the grid, or being in the background of a team where I have a known success and I know the people and I think I could be rehabilitated, I I'm not saying that I think the second option is the absolute best. I can, but I can just I can see why he chose it. 
I mean, all that says to me is he did really good in a pretty good car and he's not confident enough himself that he can beat Magnuson in a heads up battle. I doubt he believes he can't beat Magnuson, but I. Then why isn't he in a Haas beating Magnuson he, right he's now? He's been around the sport long enough to appreciate the fact that the car sometimes says more about you than you do. And I think he's trying to be picky in that regard. And I guess I don't blame him for it. That's all. I mean, DeVries got a spot for a great drive in a Williams. Yeah, Albon's how's, getting how's that working for, out for him? Albon's get well, we'll get to that, but <laughs> Albon's getting praise for drives in a Williams. You know, I mean, Sonoda's getting praise for drives in an Alphatari. Yeah. Again, it's all the everything comes down to how are you performing against your your teammate? And right now, Danny Rick doesn't have a teammate. Yes, but he's hoping that the next time he does have a teammate, he can do it in a car that's more suitable to his driving style. And 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 I just I'm not saying as that's you the, as you well know, hope is not a strategy. I well, yeah, I don't entirely agree with that. Uh, uh, you know, would would Ted would Ted Lasso agree that belief is not? You also think belief is not a strategy? Belief is not hope. Okay, well, they're pretty closely linked, but anyway. Um, I was just not, I'm shocked by this turn of turn of favor towards towards Danny Rick. I didn't no, think no, no, I no, would no. have to no, be the no, one no, no. to. It's never been fundamentally something where I have I have had a a, a grind, an axe to grind with Danny Rick. It's it's just a pra, it's, it's pragmatism. It's fundamentally motivated by pragmatism of what I think is in the cards for him and what is not. And right now, I guess I'm pragmatically thinking I think he's in a decent spot. And I yeah, don't, but if you're but when you're a team owner or you are a team owner pragmatically, are you going to put a guy in your car who? You well acknowledged last year was total if, trash relative if, to his teammate. If the alter, if if the debate is between an unknown F two commodity and a potentially rehabilitated Daniel Ricardo, who I could potentially get on the cheap out of his McLaren contract, I think there's a pretty compelling case for him. But you're assuming you can get him on the cheap out of his contract, which after this year he's, well, he's not, not going to have a McLaren contract. He, he's not going to have a choice. I, Okay, so, but again, it comes down to what is he willing to accept? You I tell me a top four team that's going to put Danny Ricardo in their seat what, against any other driver. What I'm in which case, it just goes to him accepting a seat in a midfield to backmarker team, which he had the option to do last year as well. What I'm betting is that he's not really that motivated by compensation. He's more just concerned with getting in a car that he believes he can be successful in, and that's more than likely going to need to be on the top portion of the grid. And I'm just saying, if it, and I'm not look again, Joe. I don't think. But there's what team any, is that? What well, team in the that's the top portion to, of the grid I'm, do you think is going to take him over? I'm not trying to anyone argue, else on the. I'm grid. not trying to argue that there's an immediate opportunity because there isn't one. But he's taking a roll of the dice, and if some unforeseen circumstance creates an opportunity, he's just ensuring that he's available. That's all. And 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 I I I don't think that's a terrible strategy. Maybe it isn't the best strategy. I don't think he's being irrational or selfish, which is how I feel like you're characterizing. Hit this whole like narrative of he he feels like he's entitled to a top car like no I would say he was being selfish by saying I need a year off and I am totally he's not open really to that. taking a year but what off. I think my problem is that he's being arrogant about where he should end up after the fact and he has done nothing and he can do nothing in his current role to prove that he deserves a seat in a car in the top half of the grid, in which case he's going to be presented with the same alternative that he had this year, which was, are you willing to drive in a back marker for a greatly reduced salary? I think characterizing that as arrogance is, is a bit disingenuous. I would view it as, 
he you could accuse him of being overly opportunistic. I think that would be totally fair. Maybe overly optimistic. Uh, or sure, either that, either one of those. But arrogant, I think, is, is a leap. I think that's a bit unfair. But I think if you're saying I need to be still paid $10 million and be I, in I a top five car that. because of my pedigree, then he's delusional. I, 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 I don't. I, I've seen no indication that he's primarily a money motivated person, and I think when his McLaren contract lapses, he had a, he could have had a seat at Haas if he accepted no additional compensation from Haas and just accepted his McLaren salary. He could have done that. Yeah, I know, but I, again, the point isn't about the money. The point is about the car at Haas, not the. But he also doesn't deserve that. I I don't think he thinks he deserves it, but I think he's hoping that after a year of and people have short memories. And he's going to get data from the Red Bull team and give them data. And the Red Bull team's going to talk elsewhere to people on the grid. He's hoping he can rehabilitate his perception behind the scenes that it was a car-specific issue and not a Danny Ricardo issue. And, and that Christian Horner and others who are going to see his simulator data and see his te- track testing data can be an advocate for that. He can still, in some degree, real be- rehabilitate his reputation behind the scenes. I think you're under... I think you're let, under- me propose this, let me propose this scenario to you. Let's say... Let's say Perez goes out with some illness for a race, appendicitis, let's say. Danny Ricardo steps in the car, gets second place, smashed by Verstappen, but he beats Alonso. Does that give you more confidence? Does that give you the necessary confidence in Ricardo that he's a worthwhile driver, or was he just happened to be driving the best car on the grid? Uh, I think it would make me confident enough. So for instance, would, would it make me confident enough to, rep- it, it depends on what spot on the grid you're trying to place him. Okay. So let's say in 2026, Audi and Andrea Seidel snap up signs. But we're on 2026 already? Just, I'm just playing out an example. Okay. Ferrari or uh, Andrea Seidel is rumored to really fancy Carlos signs. So he snaps him up and replaces Valtteri Bottas and does signs as the lead driver for the rehabilitation of Alfa Romeo into Audi. Who does Ferrari place Carlos signs with? I think that Daniel Ricciardo becomes a very viable option. And yes, if he has... Who, who's in their young driver program that's worth a damn? Like, if, if, if Daniel Ricciardo has a single drive at Red Bull that shows that he still has a pulse in an F1 car, I don't know why you wouldn't give a guy like that a look, even if he's been out of the game for two years. Okay, so I think Norris's contract's up at that same time. Are you putting Ricardo in the car over well, there's Norris? Too ma- there's too many. Uh, there's too many potential puzzle pieces in the air to juggle them all at once. I'm just saying that, like, that is the caliber of a team that I think he'd be worthy of being considered for. Sure. And I, I just disagree. I, I think even I think he would have to have Max go out and he beats Perez to reestablish himself as worthy of a seat on the grid. Uh, I, I think I think if he could get a seat at Red Bull and prove that he was in a tenth of a second of Verstappen's race pace, I think I think he I Yeah, think he and he hurt. wouldn't do that. He was not gonna be within a tenth of a second. Well that's what per that's what Perez was this week was at best a tenth of a second within Max's race pace. He's probably pace. off of that. He's been off a tenth Almost this whole season, so no, I don't. That's I what I'm saying. Don't... He was a tenth off, and I'm saying if if Danny Rick can co- could come in and basically mimic Perez's Miami performance, I think that would say a lot about where he is and make him worthy of a upper mid tier seat if one happened to become available. Though I'm not predicting one will. I don't find it likely. If one happened to, I wouldn't blame a team for giving him a look. I wouldn't. 
Yeah, I, I just think there's a lot of hope wrapped up in everything that you're saying and, and the hypothetical well, no, that he somehow no. performs similarly for to Verstappen as jumping in the car. My just my main point is that even if the best case scenario happens for him in which he gets to drive a race in the season like DeVries does, assuming a realistic outcome where he doesn't beat Max but still gets second, that is still not a compelling enough story and you'll still be left wondering, is it the car over the driver? Yeah, I hear it. So I, I just don't see any any visible outcome that he credentializes himself more than what he did in his prior season at McLaren. We're 20 minutes on Danny Rick and I, and, and he didn't race this weekend. So I think we got to move on. I, I hear your point. I think we're going to have to, this is the most contentious topic we've, we've had probably the entire, uh, the show's history. I I think we're gonna have to agree to disagree, but I appreciate the, uh, the candid debate. It's a, a lively debate. All right. So with that, uh, I think we pretty much wrap on on Baku and the the interim activity, and let's turn our focus to the Miami Grand Prix. With that, we had with us today a two-time Miami Grand Prix attendee, Graham. How about you tell us about your weekend? How was it? How did it compare to last season? What was your take on all the the newness and the changes from the prior year. Let the, let the people tell the people at home what it was like to be there on, on the ground at this uh, uh, historic event. Well, uh, so in general, uh, so I would just say uh, last year, I basically flew down Sunday morning, went to the Grand Prix, flew back Sunday night. So I experienced none of the broader race weekend. This year, mm. I went down on Friday night, flew back on Monday morning uh, into Monday afternoon. And, uh, it it was a totally different ball game experiencing the entire race weekend. Uh, I got. So did t- you intend all Saturday as well as all yep, of Sunday? We were at the track for about probably four hours on Saturday during qualifying, and another four or five on Sunday. So we were at the track a huge chunk of both days. Um, I liked the track on qualifying better than the race. Uh, Say more. I think it had mostly to do with the fact that there were just less people and it was mm-hmm. less congested. Yeah. Um, and it just didn't feel as overwhelming. Um, similar to how I felt like going to golf tournaments on like a Wednesday practice day or a Thursday rather than going on Sunday on championship day. Like it was just much more approachable and there weren't lines for anything. All the food was very accessible. I mean, the Miami event in general is just like, so what, like, I mean, I think everybody knows at this point that the track is literally in a parking lot outside the Dolphin Stadium. Like, the amount of temporary infrastructure they build is, like, it is mind-blowing. So, there's so much to do. There's so much food. There's so many different entertainment things. So, you're never bored, and you honestly never feel swallowed by people. But qualifying, like, it just felt like I could relax, like, while I was inside the grounds during qualifying. Um, And then the entertainment of the qualifying session itself is obviously great. Uh, it's not the Grand Prix, but, uh, but I, I thought it was pretty, pretty amazing still. So. And how about your, uh, how about your travel experience getting, getting to and from, uh, the juxtaposition of starting the trip by sitting in the spirit airlines terminal in Philadelphia international airport to then getting to Miami with all of its clothes and glamour was almost too much to handle. Uh, one of the guys that I flew down with decided to carry a dehumidifier in his lap on the plane. Uh, you do what you want with that one. Uh, not really, 
Not really sure. Uh, How did you get that on the plane? That's, I guess, my question. Great question. I don't know if Spirit charged him a $70 baggage fee for that one, uh, for the carry-on. How, uh, how big was this dehumid? Like, is this a pocket uh, dehumidifier? or Probably about the size. I'm trying to think about what to compare it to. I don't know. Probably like six inches deep, two feet tall kind of thing. Like a lap, lap like, you know, kind of like desktop size slash like put it on your They're floor. just like a real dehumidifier. Yeah, it was like just a, <laughs> like a dehumidifier. Yeah. And did he turn it on during the flight, I assume? Was like it actively no. dehumidifying? No, it was it was as if he was transporting it, like a piece, like couriering a piece of art. It was Oh, odd. this is a precious item. So of sorts, yeah. I, I, unclear. Um, I don't really have a whole lot more to say about that other than I hate spirit. They're a necessary evil. And, uh, you know, the creatures come crawling out of their holes to board those flights. And it is what it is. So were there more creatures than just the dehumidifier man? Uh, well, there was another man sitting next to me at the gate who was screaming at one of his kids for he, who he was presumably on the way to see in Fort Lauderdale or Miami. And he was screaming at them for buying the wrong flavor of AHA seltzer. Like, outrageously screaming at them. And then after he got off the phone, he had this big rant with his wife about just how lost and depraved this child was and hopeless this child was. Uh, and the only thing I could hear on the call was that the issue was about seltzer. So that was interesting. Um, and of course, you had the typical, you know, people yelling and threatening to assault gate agents over bag size and things like that. So it was quite the show. Got there on time. Uh, we stayed at the Marriott Hollywood Beach. I would highly recommend, uh, you know, good uh, good beach bar, good breakfast. And uh, I got a nice little boardwalk uh, that stretches all the way down the length of Hollywood Beach that you can kind of walk up and down. Hollywood Beach is a little bit like... Um, it's a little gimmicky and touristy. It's not like on Myrtle Beach level, but it, so it's a little bit nicer than that. But like, it's still kind of a collection of like Florida mans, like walking around, uh, you know, like you so go if to you're the, going for the real experience. Yeah. That's where you, well, we that's went to, go. we went to Nick's Tavern, which is like this dive bar. It's like the only dive bar open late, like around the Highwood Beach area. And, you know, like random dudes will just walk up to the bar shirtless and like, and it, you know, they got karaoke going on, except it was karaoke, but the DJ was running the karaoke and he said it wasn't karaoke and he like was trying to sing every song, but he was terrible and he wouldn't let anybody else on stage. Like he, he was like having his moment. Anyway, it was it was a good weekend. Um but I I will say and you know, and I think you know as well as I do, the internet is very especially your the European internet is very hard on American races. And you know, they they bitch about the Instagram influencers and the pomp and circumstance of all of the show ruining, you know, F1 races and fan accessibility in general, um, which I'm all a little bit tired of. But the one point they do have is the point about the prices and how outrageous they are. And I think that the only appropriate thing I can do in response to what happened over the weekend is to read an in-memorandum for my personal credit card. Hotel room for three nights, $1,700. Single grandstand ticket at turn one, $1,700 more. Lobster roll platter for four, $400. Mercedes baseball hat, $90. Williams baseball hat, 
$5. A single can of high noon seltzer, $10. Watching Will I Am conduct a symphony, priceless. <clears throat> Thank you for hearing me for that in memorandum. As you can see, uh, it hurt the wallet. And on that basis, I don't think I'll be doing this every year or maybe ever again. So those are my takeaways. I would have been mourning in for months. <laughs> it's, it's outrageous, right? Like those are big numbers. Like those numbers are not made up. Just FYI for people like that. Other than the, we, other than the Williams baseball. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. But other than that, I mean, that's how much we paid. Jeez. That, <laughs> it's crazy. Well, it's like I, and I'm glad, I'm glad you ended it on a positive note mentioning will I am because coming out of this re- weekend, I, I think that was probably the, the most talked about aspect of the race, which was the driver introductions. So the whole world, myself included, have a perspective. As an attendee of the race, I'm curious, what was it like there being in person? Did you have any reactions in the moment as it was surprisingly unfolding? I had a reaction to Will I Am just because I don't think he knows dick about conducting music. Um, okay. So if they had had like a legit composer up there, like that would have been kind of badass, like in like Tales, like actual, you know, like a that'd have been cool if they had actually leaned into the orchestra thing. Cause I thought the orchestra thing was kind of cool. Um, the note about driver intros, you know, like I, I'm kind of okay with the hype machine. I get why people get exasperated with it. I know you're shaking your head. You're about to just take a giant dump all over this take. I, I don't really understand the harm in it, man. And, and I know you're like a purist F1 fan and you're basically European essentially. And your take on how American media is changing F1. But then I say like, do you not love money? Do you not love capitalism? Like to Max, you know, and Max is like, oh, I'm going to retire from F1 if they made me keep doing these stupid, dumb media things and all these introductions. Oh, dear, dear. I'm like, all right, good. If you can find somebody else to pay you $40 million a year, like they're trying to make the sport more lucrative for you, bud. Like the least you can do is stand on the grid for another 20 minutes and have some celebrities get involved in the sport. Like I really don't think it's that harmful is my general take, but you obviously disagree. So please rant. I guess I just don't know what made it helpful. Like, is that what's going to drive people to the sport is like LL cool J's five second synopsis. You're talking about it. We're talking about it. Yeah. About how shitty it is. Well, but you're talking about it, but it was fucking cringy. You're not. It was. That's not the only take on Twitter. Some people thought it was cool. Will Buxton thought it was cool. Wow, exactly. That <laughs> is all you need to know about that. So I don't even need to make the rest of my case. <laughs> I rest. Um, yeah, it was just, it was cringy. Also, if they're trying to do this at multiple races, are they just going to say the same thing about no. the driver? Do you say it, something different? Like, do you pretty quickly exhaust your sort of lead in for each driver? No. It like gives, how abstract and personal do you get? The man who had a salami dude. and cheese sandwich yesterday. Okay, let me, like, let me let me approach it from a different angle. What opportunities do racetracks have to put their own cultural and country touch on the presentation of the race? Is that our cultural touch? Is fucking fog machines? And is it sad? Sure, walkouts? maybe. But I would argue yes. Like if I was going to go to. Um, you know, other than the playing of the anthem, 
because that's the only really other thing that's out there. I love the F1 song and the mariachi music. That was a classy local adaptation. Not like it's fucking WWE and fucking Hulk Hogan's about to come but, out. But I guess my point is having an announcer bring all the drivers out was an American approach to an intro. Another country may decide to do it completely differently and do it less like the intro to a WWE match. I guess in general, I'm o- I'm okay with it being open-ended. I'm okay with the hype machine increasing, but allowing it to be very country and venue-specific and for them to just kind of go for it with their own creative liberty. If F1 comes at it and controls the script, it's going to suck. But I'm okay with certain venues trying it and putting their own unique flair on it. Like, what if... Uh, I don't want to culturally appropriate anybody, so I'm not going to throw out another example, but you get what I'm saying. Maybe you don't. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess, sure, if if there are enough national idiosyncrasies that could be infused in pre-race ceremony, sure. I, but I do like Alonzo's point of an emphasis on consistency. And it's like, we shouldn't just do this in Miami, with, in which case the alternative is do you do this everywhere or do you do this nowhere? And I found it excessive and obnoxious and cringeworthy and therefore it should be done nowhere. And I feel highly validated by the fact that almost universally all of the drivers say, dude, it was a primary distraction from their pre-race preparation. Can I, I can't say this more emphatically. I don't give a shit what the drivers think. I don't give a shit. What they well, think. that's what makes you such a shitty business partner. If they no, you're not consulting your business partner because you're I'm not concerned. consulting your you're not no. consulting your stakeholders. Okay, why in a league where I my revenue driver is not the drivers, it is the fans and their engagement, and also the drivers who serve those fans have no collective bargaining power. Why would I give a shit? I think based on survey methods and the likes and dislikes of various videos, the vast majority of fans are expressing their distaste for the walkout. So if that is true engagement, I'm not saying that you have to do a walkout the exact same way as Miami every year, but so do videos of mass shootings, but we don't encourage those. Okay. So no driver. I'm going to, I'm going to go there. This is going to be a bit of a touchy line to toe, but I'm going to go there. None of the drivers complained when they were doing Black Lives Matter demonstrations as a distraction before the before they got in their cars on the grid. Because I would argue that probably took the exact same amount of time before the. I think it was anthem. a distraction. They were doing the anthem, and it was a simultaneous it still expression took up more of time. personal beliefs. It still took up more time, and nobody complained about the. Did time they that need they were a special stage? At, did they need a special I, stage and to contract yeah, but, a symphony to participate? But 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 your argument is that it's time away from their time to to prep with their teams, which it's no different in that regard. It's it's got a completely it did different take intention. Okay, it did, they had to which, queue up. They had a separate allocation on the schedule for the walkouts. Yeah, but that that's no. The only reason you're seeing that is because people in the F1 reporting went out of their way to publish that schedule so that people could shit on how over the top the Miami race was. Nobody would have ever done the same thing for the Black I think Lives it's a Matter false equi- I think it's a false it, equivalency it's to not the social an, protest. It's not an exact equivalent, but it's similar. And I just, I guess in general, I'm not going to romanticize or feel sympathetic about drivers feeling like they deserve uninterrupted time right before they get in the car. Access is what makes Formula One unique. And if 
we need a little bit of access to put on a little bit of a show to build up the hype before something happens and they get in their car and the race actually starts. I have absolutely no problem with it. And if a driver has a problem with it, I have absolutely no problem that they have a problem with it. And I would tell Max, then go find something else to do. If this five minutes that you spent in a hype session before you got in the car is the straw that broke the camel's back that said, F1's no longer worth it to me, then I would say, good for you, buddy. Go live your truth. And like you said earlier, there is going to be 10 other guys lined up, ready to snap photos and kiss babies to support the hype train of F1 so they can have a seat in that effing car. I just think that seems so Change short-sighted. Change is hard. River. I think that's just so short-sighted that I'm going to put a superficial activity in front of having one of the best drivers on the grid on the grid. That's like F1 willing to have Max walk away for something stupid is like, no. Fox News firing Tucker it's, Carlson. It's, it's not like, a, you it's think not, you're bigger than the athlete. It's not a realistic threat. let's see where that threat. gets you. It's not a realistic threat. Matt's not going to walk away from F1 for a five-minute intro. And I'm not saying that every every single um, intro needs to be structured the same way. They don't, have to, they don't all have to be as cheesy and gimmicky. I'm sure they can play with the format. I'm just not opposed to increasing the buildup and the production value involving the drivers. Like, I'm not. And, and and maybe the compromise is do away with the damn driver parade. Nobody gives a flying F about the driver parade. It's not even on a broadcast most of the time. So do away with, with the driver parade, give them more time with their physios two hours before the race, and then have them do a little more right before they get in the car when everybody's in their seats in the grandstands and there's more eyeballs on the track and there's actually a broadcast playing. Like, that. that's a great compromise. Like, I don't know, man. I just, I'm not, I I, you're, I just think you're way too sympathetic to the drivers. And I'm I'm kind of honestly in like a little bit of a shut up and dribble mentality right now, which is like a, I don't care. And if you want to leave the sport because you think you're at being asked to do too much to serve the entertainment product. Yeah, fine. Go, go do something else. I don't, I don't care. Hmm. I think next time they should at the very least have like a laser show and like some jugglers. Oh, geez. Maybe a fucking clown car to fully embody <laughs> the fucking freak show that has become the fucking Miami Grand Prix. You are just an elitist who just wants only you and your other racing nerd friends on Discord to be allowed to watch Formula One. And if that was the reality, you may be happier, but you would be poorer. And everybody in F1 would be too. And I just think that's really stupid. I think think the, the best articulation of what the Miami Grand Prix embodies came from an article I was reading kind of doing a, 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 a postmortem of, of people's experience from the first Grand Prix. And, and the statement that stood out to me was the Miami Grand Prix is a selfie museum in a parking lot. And I, I think you are just further perpetuating the, the hyper celebrity culture and superficial pomp and circumstance for what is a fucking race Dude, in a parking lot. F1 is the most superficial sport in the world. Like, the sooner you accept that, the better off you are. Like, yeah, it's in a parking lot outside Miami, but that's practically the only difference from a pomp and circumstance standpoint between this and Monaco and the fact that Monaco has history. But practically speaking, it's no different. Like, I don't know. We I just, just better have... They just better fucking have cheerleaders at Monaco this year. That's all I'm saying. I thought the cheerleaders were pretty cool. If I'm honest, I, you know, I enjoyed it. And it gave me a lot of stuff to pay attention to before the race start. So, well, the eight-year-old boy inside you is probably, uh, you know, jumping with joy. You want to know what else? And this is just 
people to think about. You may think that the buildup to the race on the broadcast is already exciting enough because you've got Martin Brundle's gridwalk and he's walking around acting like an idiot with all these and celebrities and Jackie Stewart's grabbing Roger Federer by the arm and all this BS. Well, guess what? When you're in the grandstands, you can't see any of that. You you can't see any of that. It would be like having a pregame show before an NFL game of a sideline reporter walking through the sidelines and interviewing coaches and players before kickoff, but they don't show any of it on the stadium inside the actual. And so as a fan, but what do you think the people, but what do you think the people at turn 13 had? uh, Everybody has a video screen in front of them. So I could see everything. I I actually, with the will I am stuff, I couldn't see it with my own eyes because of the angle from the grandstand. We were too far down near the end of turn one. So I could not actually see the full grid with my but eyes. Cheap seats, but I had a nosebleeds. Oh, I could tell you they were not. Yeah, seventeen hundred dollars cheap. But I had eyes on a video monitor with audio playing that was very easy to listen to and and see all the action going on as a fan in the stadium. Like it, it it's. I, I don't know. I just I it, I found entertainment value in it in my seat in the stands, and I think that counts for something. Well, I'm glad you do. <laughs> and with that, I Agreed guess we'll let the I guess we'll let the listeners decide, but I have to say I am happily surprised with the amount of genuine uh disagreement we have I, on on I, this week's episode. This is I, lovely. I, I kind of hate you right now. Just a little bit, but yeah, just a tiny bit. And that's how you know that this is great. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we going next? We oh, want to talk God. about like the quality of the race the racing itself. Do we need to give that a minute to breathe? I mean, I mean, sure. I guess we should we should move to that next. So on the heels of a Baku race, which was coined as a boring race, what was your take on on this week's race in Miami? Was it a boring race? Did it have the requisite excitement on track? What was your thoughts on the amount of overtaking the general yeah. intrigue of kind of the entire race weekend? <clears throat> um, so, I mean, on the ground, uh, there were two things happening leading up to the Grand Prix, which made me think this could be, you know, people were down on the Miami Grand Prix after the quality of racing last year. And so, uh, and they didn't change the change the track configuration at all. So um, they only resurfaced it. Uh, so I was going into Sunday. There were two things that potentially could happen. It, it, there was rain potentially in the forecast. There was like scattered showers kind of coming in and out. It rained Saturday night pretty hard at the track and washed all the rubber off. So you're like, oh man, if it rains, it's going to be chaos because it would have been rain on new tarmac, which is like Turkey 2020 all over again, which would have been nuts. Uh, the other one was that it was incredibly windy in Miami on Sunday morning and like windy to the, like gusting 40. And you were like, cars are going to get blown off the track. So I went into the race, like we literally walking through the gates, were saying over under on DNFs is probably set at four. Like, which is very high. Uh, I think we had, what, five or six at Australia, which was outrageously high. Um, And then we got none of that. So in terms of DNFs, which is what people generally look for in terms of excitement, we did get a shuffled grid order at qualifying, and we did get about 20% more overtakes in the race this year than last year. Some of that 60 total, right? 60 total, which is actually the highest total of any race this season. And so after Baku, people were starting to question whether the car aero redesign was really contributing to closer racing. I think those same people need to take a hard look at Miami and ask themselves the same question. Because to me, what I saw was 
interesting out-of-order cars, having no trouble getting around each other in certain areas of the track and overtaking, and then being able to do so in a clean way that led to clean racing. Like, I think that's a great combination. I was, you know, we saw a lot of wheel-wheel racing in turn one and a lot of overtaking. I, as a, you know, in the stands, I was super entertained by it. So, I, as I sit here, I don't think I can dog the quality of the race. I, I was a little disappointed because I was expecting potentially total chaos, but I, objectively, I think the quality was still good. Agree with all of that. Uh, again, I was hoping for, well, actually, interestingly, I am always a person, just like Sam Collins, always hoping for rain because it leads to fascinating races. But in this case, with Perez on pole, Verstappen in ninth, I thought, if there's no sort of safety cars, if it's just a normal, straightforward race, Perez has a chance to to win this one, take the lead in the driver's championship, and then, you know, and then that whole narrative has a chance to blossom. And so I was eager for a, a normal race. And again, with the 60 overtakes, two thirds of which were on the broadcast, I was happily impressed with the quality of the broadcast and how many of the pivotal moments were captured, how much of the close, um, the chases were were captured. And so I thought they did a, a, a tremendous job overall. And whilst probably some of the overtakes felt overly simplistic, and of course you had the situation where certain drivers let other drivers by because it quote unquote wasn't their race. I thought you had a, a Miami Grand Prix once again, it offers some good back and forth, right? You really have two straights and two DRS zones where there's a lot of passing. One where it turns in, one where there's an opportunity for a little back and forth battle and the other one where, you know, you go into that slow right-hand turn in which I think that's more of like the mid-track DRS zone where like the turn, yeah, yeah, sector two, whereas the, the, the home straight turn one gives you a little bit more of that chance to like battle back and forth. And I thought you saw plenty of instances where drivers were fighting the pass. I mean, particularly Magnuson. There was instances with, I think it was Leclerc largely, where you know Leclerc was trying to make the pass and Magnuson yeah. cuts him off the other way and holds him off. And I thought, man, this is really great wheel-to-wheel racing with teams that you wouldn't naturally expect. And so, I mean, my perspective is if you thought this was a boring race, you probably should find another sport to watch because I agree. this was as in terms of a quote unquote normal race without weather, safety cars, et cetera, about as exciting of a race as you're going to have. And so yep. I thought Miami was a great track last year. I continue to think it's a great track this year. I also think that they could probably simplify that whole, what is it? 14, 15 chicane it, underneath the freeways and yeah. clean that up a little bit. But short of that, I think it's a great racetrack, great quality of racing. Um, so I think it adds value to the to the calendar, arguably much more than than other races do at this point. I agree with that. That's the only edit I would make to the layout is to straighten that chicane at 14 to 15 leading up to the long straight. The only problem is that is a part of the track where the track literally goes under a highway underpass. So it, they're working on a confined plot of land. So I don't know how much flexibility they have to actually straighten that. But if let's put that aside, that is the one thing I would take out. Like similar to Barcelona, everybody used to complain about that tight chicane that was right before the home straight. That's finally been taken out. So we'll see how that plays out this year uh, to the quality. Actually, it was out last year, wasn't it? For the Spanish Grand Prix last year? 
Or well, no, it first? should be this year that it will this be year. it yeah. will be different. So let's keep our eye on that. It's two weeks from now, three weeks from now. So to see if it affects the quality of the racing there, I think there's good evidence to believe that allowing them to go into the back straight with more speed and following more closely would make that a that's actually where the least overtakes occur relative to the home straight in the first DRS zone, which is kind of surprising. Yeah, and I don't know well enough. I'd have to go back and look, but I don't know why you couldn't have more of just a sweeping left-hand approach. I know the I, bank angle of the could. road is tough, it, but could you it, not grade that down to have a more gradual it, bank, you know, angle upon which you're rising up at that point? I, I, I don't know if there's columns obstructing the angle or it. what, but that is it. It is it. The, they're is truly it the working columns? between highway overpass columns. That's that's it. So I think it's just figuring out how to make it connect. But then how do you not have a better entry angle? I guess so that yeah. you're still just maybe taking a single left-hander in versus the return complex. I think if I'm the race organizer, because I redesigned the entire paddock this year and put it inside the stadium, I had enough fish to fry. And because moving that turn requires me to move more than just the track, I was, you know, I probably just didn't want to try to absorb it all in one year. I wouldn't be surprised if they make that change next year or the year after. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Because really, to me, that's the only constraint. The rest of it seems like an awesome racetrack. It seems like it'd be fun to drive. And the resurfacing seems to have done its job. You didn't hear anybody complaining about that. I didn't. I don't know if you heard that on the broadcast. I mean, other than it being too low, low traction off the racing line. Well, yeah. just overall, it sounded like it was a a greener surface. It was less deg, less traction, and so it, it was just harder for them to get their feet under them. So I, I think that was maybe the other thing. It was too smooth of a surface, but I don't know enough about it. It didn't seem like a clamoring to any great degree. So I think overall really positive. But but that does lead you to, you know, this race I think means that four out of the five races this season were one-stop races. And to me, if I had to think about not just this race, but the quality of the racing overall, yes, there's been a lot of talk of the car design. They lifted the car, so there's more dependence on the topside aerodynamics for downforce and therefore that's creating dirty air harder to follow i think that would have happened anyway as car teams continue to develop their car right even if you had lower cars they're still going to look for more downforce but to me the the big gap in the the racing quality is still the fact that we have way too many one-stop races and by default Races should be two stops at least. Now, Karun, I guess, has has long advocated for you should use all three tire compounds in a single race. I don't think that's yeah, the answer nah, because it forces strategic decisions that I don't think need to be there. People will, hate, th- people will hate that for the same reason they hated the tire rule in qualifying previously. Agreed. But, that, but I do think that with Pirelli they need to be developing tires that degrade at a fast enough rate by which you need to do at least two stops because of the strategic differentiation, the greater importance on teams and pits. But the fact that Max could have basically gone the entire race on his hard tires is not acceptable. And, and I don't care if you have four pit stops, but you need to have two or more. And right now we're seeing one stop race races almost universally. And I think that that's degrading the overall quality of races and the variability in outcomes. I don't disagree with what you're pointing at. I don't know that I would swing the pendulum quite as far as maybe you just implied. My happy medium might be like roughly half the races in the calendar are going to predominantly need two pit stops. 
the other half, maybe you get away with one or there's some more in the in-between. I like the intrigue of some teams going for a one-stop strategy in an otherwise two-stop race as a, as a, as a way of kind of trying to stir the pot or sh- shake the pot a little bit. Um, but the complexity of implementing that is the commercial motivation of Pirelli to make a stronger tire for research purposes because it's something that's closer and closer to something that's com- commercially viable. Gerald, you can't shake your head at that. That's the whole reason why Michelin doesn't want to make a bid when the Pirelli contract goes up in 2026. Yeah, because Michelin is what say you shouldn't have it, a tire that you have to change at all. But we're in a world where you have No, Michelin degrading. sponsors a lot of racing series. A lot of racing series. But I, I think that their point is they it first off, you're not gonna you're not making a great argument for sustainability. So we just need to throw that out there. But by tripling the F one and their use of recyclable tires is going to save the I'm, world. I'm, I'm just, I'm just making the argument. I'm not saying that that's one that I would trumpet from the hilltops, but it, it is an argument. And rubber is very not environmentally friendly. It's it, it, impossible to dispose of in a responsible manner. So, it, it you know that's out there. Uh, but yes, as a commercial tire manufacturer, your incentive should be to produce something that is more transferable to road car technology, and that is fundamentally not going to be a tire that just shreds itself apart. And also, well, I also think I also think that whole shift to road equivalent tires was one of the biggest failures of this season to begin with, which was the shift to the 18 inch tire. So I, I just think it's yeah, a but- stupid thing to say we're going to make tires for this hyper specific car series but under the veil that it's somehow adaptable to your Honda Civic. And it's like, fuck that. You're doing it for the brand. Make tires that are going to make this sport as exciting as possible. But but you can appreciate the balance they're trying to strike in that they're trying to avoid Baku 2021 where Max loses a 20-second lead on a tire just blowing up because the integrity of it was in question. Yes, but I would trust the engineering capability of Pirelli to design a tire that degrades quickly that but doesn't fail highly uncharacteristic of your general distrust of institutions but i putting that putting that aside that's a private corporation i <laughs> they might be publicly traded but we'll have to check the well, tape. i mean I, private <laughs> versus public come on i um i know you're a big fan of corporate governance uh i I, I don't disagree with the direction you're pointing in. I just don't think the pendulum needs to swing so far that every race is two or three stops. That's a little bit ridiculous. And I think at that point, you might be getting to the point where you're potentially minimizing the value of driver tire management, which is a skill. Agreed. And- I think honestly, over two stops is kind of chaotic, but it feels yeah. like in all of the races where there's interesting strategic decisions to be made and you have to balance the, the pit window with where on track you'd come out, two stops seems to generally offer a really healthy balance. And right now we're too far to the one side. And we use the three softest compounds in this race and it wasn't enough. I'll, I'll meet you at one and a half stops and we'll call it a deal. You know, if that's the best compromise we can reach on today's episode. All right. I I don't want to fight you. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Where are we going next? Well, with that, I think uh, before we get into individual team performance, it's time for us to spend a few moments with this week's sponsor, which is 1-800-Flowers. Sending flowers are not just for happy holidays or special occasions like Mother's Day, which is coming up, by the way. But you can also send flowers to say, I'm sorry. 
Do you have a team of people who work tirelessly to prepare you for success, only to make their lives more difficult by sending your race car into the wall just mere hours before race day? Or are you the face of a billion-dollar corporation, but also the biggest drain on their cost cap? Or are you the sole hope for a return to victory for millions of fans and an entire nation only to repeatedly break their hearts in the moments they needed you most. For all those people that you've disappointed in your life, send them flowers from 1-800-Flowers to show them just how truly sorry you are. 1-800-Flowers, when saying, I'm sorry, just isn't good enough. Yeah, now Chuck, Chuck LeClaire, he said, you know, I, I, I filled it. He felt it. Background music brought to you by Chuck LeClaire, recording artist and F1 qualifying extraordinaire, who is currently seventh in the World Driver Championship. Sorry, I Thank just you. felt the need Thank to you. clap for that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Hold on. I haven't officially transitioned us out of the adverb. Oh, All right. oh okay. All right. All right. Thank now God. We're back. We're back. I don't know whether you're clapping for me or Willie T. Ribs. <laughs> Pour it out for Willie T, man. They boxed him out of the broadcast this year. They clearly thought that was a mistake last year. I, there was which, no sight of him. Which I will say, I feel like the biggest travesty of this race weekend was having <laughs> LL Cool J do the driver walkout rather than Willie T. Ribs. I so, mean, can you fucking imagine? Okay, so what? It, okay, back to our earlier debate. If Willie T. Ribs had done the driver walkout, you're not going to be bitching about it at all. <laughs> I think if you do damn near whatever. Yeah, now Chuck, Chuck LeClaire, he said, you know, I, I, I filled it. He felt it. <laughs> he filled it. And I filled it. <laughs> I feel that you do damn near anything with Willie T. Ribs. I'm fucking on board. You know <laughs> so I really, think- it was a, it was not a problem with the concept. It was really the problem with execution. I literally, whenever you say Willie T. Rib, the person that comes to my mind is the the guy that owned the barbecue joint in House of Cards. That's like the first guy that I think of. <laughs> I I think it was a miss Freddy, for Freddy. them not to bring back Willie T. But you know, he's got Austin. <laughs> he's got he's got Vegas. You know, maybe we'll see. Maybe we'll see more of Willie T. and less of I think less of LL Cool J. I think they're saving him for Vegas. I th- I think they're saving him. I don't know. I feel like Willie T in Austin. Austin. That's You're just right. more. I feel like he's a Texas man. You know I mean, I, what? What? What if they embrace that? Uh, you know that meme account that sent out the NASCAR version of all the F one drivers in pictures. What if they <laughs> like? What if they like embrace that and got Willie T to do intros and made them all like NASCAR driver intros? I think Willie T needs to just be around more. <laughs> that is my belief, and <laughs> there's nothing you can say to get me off of that. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, 1-800-Flowers, for sponsoring the show this week. Uh, very, very timely sponsorship. Uh, with that, let's move to the individual teams from the top of the grid. Far and away leading the Constructors' Championship this season. Well on track to fulfill your prophecy of surpassing their margin of victory from past season. One and two finished this, this race with 
Perez on pole, only to have Verstappen come from ninth and snatch it away, not on the last lap or 10 laps before, but what was it, like 20 laps before the end of the race, yeah. ends up surpassing Perez. Red Bull, though, runaway train this point um, with 224 points, basically double the next next closest team. Verstappen now plus 14 on Perez. We we had exchanged some messages pre-race around what we thought the outcome would be and what were the implications for the rest of the season. What was your thoughts on pre-race, the hope for Perez and and what it would mean for the rest of the season versus what does it mean now post-race, knowing that uh, Verstappen came back from ninth to to win? Quite soundly. I know we didn't have a podcast, so I, I unfortunately, this is not one of those where I can say check the tape because the tape doesn't exist. But post Baku, even I, as a Perez fanboy, w- was saying it's more track specific than not. I would still bet on Max to win the large majority of the tracks for the rest of the season and thus pick him as the favorite to win the World Drivers Championship, which I think largely bore true. I think you also got a motivated Max that really wanted to reassert himself, and he certainly did that. The double overtake on Leclerc and Magnuson was gorgeous. Like people want to, people look for opportunities to minimize Max because they don't like his persona. He got booed in the pre-race intros, which got talked about on Twitter, which Max kind of shrugged off. But you know, and, and it's funny how people like to minimize that double overtake. But the through goes Hamilton overtake at Silverstone is like the most replayed driving clip of all time when Hamilton subsequently lost both of those positions on the track after it had happened. He didn't even hold the positions and Max blew these guys doors off, obviously in great machinery, but like it dude, his race craft, the patience he showed the overtaking positions he chose. He started overtaking before DRS even enabled on lap two. It, it was a masterclass. Um, I actually, I know I'm hard on Max's persona on, you know, previous episodes. I I would actually like to commend him for like a lot of the way he handled the Baku race. He's very professional. He even went on Pardon My Take with Checo and uh, Big Cat was doing this like joke, like team building activity. And he asked each of them to say something nice about one another as like a joke. But then they both came up with a genuine response. And um, Checo said about Max, He's he he kind of jokingly say he's like Max is a good loser, was what he said, and then everybody laughed and he dived. He's like, no, no, like what I mean is like when Max knows you've won on merit, he genuinely is compliments you. He he wants to beat you. He's 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 not happy for you, but an, an a good job for Max when he knows you've won on merit is something he goes out of his way to do, and he genuinely means because he. He's like one of those people. Like if you're going to beat me and you do it on pure merit, like I'm not going to be a dick about it. Um, he he can be petty, but I I do want to acknowledge and commend that. Like I think he has evolved at least in the last two races and just his seemingly how well he can handle the team dynamic. He handled being beaten by Perez on merit way better than I thought he would, and and showed up and showed out in a very Max Verstappen typical way at Miami. So um, I think his stock is pretty high right now. And I, you know, unless you get a Nico Rosberg Hamilton situation where he just has a bunch of DNFs and Perez sneaks in, that's about the only way I could see Perez really having a shot at the driver's title. I mean, in terms of the overall composure of Max, I, I was going to ask you about that, and I would totally dis, I would totally agree with 
with your position on his perception as of late. I think over the last couple of races, he's done a very good job of how he articulates himself post Baku race, post qualifying. And, and I think largely it has, I presume it, it comes with being a two-time champion, particularly getting that second one, which was purely on merit and removing a ton of pressure from him in terms of what he wants to achieve. He's in a killer car. He's older, so he knows the potential of the car. He's been in several years now, so he knows the trajectory of seasons. And I think he he just generally has less pressure in the fact that he's now a two-time champion in that he's comfortable with how the season's going to play out and not overweighting every single bad qualifying, unfortunate thing in a race. And so I think that shows maturity for him. And to your point around Perez, I, I think it's also a subtle nod at Perez's acknowledgement of Verstappen's character or perspective and the fact that, you know, post Brazil, Max is so pissed and he's going to hold his position because it's about merit on track and performing how you perform. I'm not going to fucking give you positions, but if you beat me on merit, like Checo did in Baku, I mean, lap after lap, holding the gap with Max breathing down your neck, dude, fucking good on you. Well done. Great race. You deserve the win. And, and so, I, but I think Max has found that, and and I like the overall the overall team dyna- dynamic. And and pre race, I was thinking, wow, Checo on pole. This, if if he wins, I was you know I had my talking points prepared around how this is emblematic of what Checo needs to do for the rest of the season. He needs to be perfect, and he needs to capitalize on every mistake. But as we know, looking at last season, it's the structure of the calendar, and I just that is not going to be the case. Dude enough races for the rest of the season and and you saw it there i mean max is just a fucking machine if you look at the trajectory of his individual lab times and just it's like a robot man it's like how you would trend it in a computer game and he is just automatic and i mean quite quite simply not comparable perez could not match him in the race despite being on fresher tires softer tire it just didn't matter in, in high-speed turns, he's superior. Checo currently has him in low-speed turns, I think, net-net. But in high-speed turns, net Max is on it. And, yeah, the end of his first stint on those hards was unbelievable. Hey, man, I he mean, literally could have gone the entire race and still opened up the gap. He was opening up the well, gap all the way until the point when he pitted. And you heard Horner in the post-race. He said that the Max's engineers were pushing to start him on the mediums because they all believed the medium was going to be the better race tire, and they genuinely believed Checo, and Max was adamant he wanted to start on the hards. And, yeah, so, yeah, he's got instincts. I'm not going to go so far as to go back and relitigate all of his previous character flaws on the basis that you just articulated and forgive him for him, which I think you'll understand. But I, in general, agree that he's, he's principled, even though those principles at times make him a dick, and he's consistent in his application of those principles, and there is some respect to be had in that. So I, I will give you that. Um, uh, who do we want to, which teams do we want to cherry pick? I don't know that we need to go down the order exhaustively given we're uh, 90 minutes in at this point. Well, you know, this is a two for one special, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not overly concerned about it, but well, I, I do think we know. have to touch on Aston. I mean, in this, this week, Alonzo, once again, on the podium, third place. Meanwhile, Stroll qualifying in 18th, I believe, and, and finishing 12th. Yeah, good race. So... 
But ultimately, because of Stroll's lack of of landing in the points this race, McLaren, or I'm sorry, Aston Martin gave up five points to Mercedes this week. Now just plus six, 102 to 96. Um, you know, obviously, and and much of it coming from us on this show, plenty of criticism for Stroll. But after this race, all of the criticism coming out once again, given the gap between him and Alonso. But do you think the criticism is warranted? after this race, given, what, I guess, the rest of the season that he's had? What happened? Did something happen to him in qualifying, or was he truly that low on merit? I can't even remember. I mean, I think there was timing elements where you were on track. It was a greener track, but, I mean, he made some point, mistakes. do you have an excuse? I Look, mean, I mean, Stroll is who he thought he was. Alonso's going to carry that team if they're going to beat Mercedes. So, you know, it's basically you have Alonso – and then maybe a slightly better car than Mercedes throughout the entire season, and then debate. Do you think it's be... right for him to be raked over the coals for for this twelfth place finish? No, I mean I, I think he had a bad qualifying session, and he did well in the race to claw some of it back. Um, and in the car he was in, and the quality of driver he was, I think that's about all you could ex- expect it from him in the race. So no, I. Look, if people want to beat him over the head for not being Alonzo, then great. But like to that, I would say, who is? Yeah, like, I agree. He had a bad qualifying. It yeah. was tough given the the re- reversion of track quality after the rainstorm yeah. Saturday night, right? And and so that being said, but he still finished sixth, seventh, and fourth with a with a yeah. energy recovery DNF in there in between. So he's done phenomenally well this season. And as much shit as we give him, I, I do not think that you can count this as the marker that he's trash again. I mean, he's done very well this season. And look, you said, yeah, racing against Alonso, his best advantage is the fact that he just races against driver, you know, championship drivers. And so at the end of the day, you can always just say, well, it's Alonso. You know, of course he's not going to be as good. But what I would put to you is what happens if they get to the end of this season? They're sitting second right now, barely. What happens if they lose second or even third and end up fourth because of Lance's lack of points? Do you think that changes the perception of him on the team more than, Hey, we're a midfield team. Ah, we didn't do that great. But if it was like, no, if you did your job, we could have been second. And now we're sitting fourth. If it's like a Lando Ricardo disparity. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's a very interesting hypothetical and it's not entirely out of question. So, um, I don't know. I mean, objectively, I don't think he's going to lose his seat, you know, because how many more years are you going to get out of Alonzo? And so they're going to turn over. So, He's going to be there no matter what, almost. Yeah, yeah. Hey, well, how about this? If Stroll... Ricardo. If, if, if that scenario plays out, would you blame Aston Martin for replacing Stroll with Daniel Ricardo and making Stroll the third driver? I would probably See? not. I would not take Ricardo over Stroll at this point. But I... No... At this point, I'm asking about if the scenario you just described plays out, which is he. I don't think I don't think Ricardo would give me any better chance. Oh, disagree. Disagree. Yeah. Agree to disagree. Time will tell. But it is an interesting hypothetical that I have not heard presented anywhere else of. They're in a great spot now, but if he keeps not finishing in the points, what do we do? Um, I mean, overall Mercedes then pretty straightforward. They finished fourth and sixth recovery drive from Hamilton this weekend from 13th. Meanwhile, Russell came up from sixth solid start from Russell 
moderate start from Hamilton, but he was caught in a multiple DRS trains throughout the race, but still made his way through. Hamilton still sitting third in drivers, 12 ahead of signs, 16 on Russell and 22 on Leclerc. Um, I mean, given that as your current standings, any new expectations for for the year in terms of driver championship and and how that shakes out between Mercedes and and Ferrari drivers? No, nah, not really. I mean, they're kind of still who we thought they were. Car had a bad weekend. Drivers had a great weekend. You know, mm-hmm. how I'd characterize this. Uh, it, it's it's a typical you know the Mercedes is unpredictable but predictably kind to its tires kind of thing. And this was a track where the tires kind of in the Grand Prix came into the window and they just started working, you know? Yeah. Um, it's like they don't have max pace in in yeah. qualifying. They can't really put together stellar qualifying laps. But again, tire treatment, overall positive for race strategy, long stints. Yeah. yeah. And, and and then, you know, Lewis and Matt and Russ, uh, Russell make lemonade out of lemons and they are who we thought they were. I still, to the, I believe they are the best collective driver combo on the grid. And I think they demonstrated that. And... Yeah, I mean, if Mercedes can just get their aero in order, they're bringing a new Florid Imola, their new side pods and everything else at Barcelona, supposedly. So, you know, if they can just sort out the engineering of the car and take a big step forward there, you know, maybe they have the drivers to then extend the quality of that car and maybe nip at the heels of Red Bull. I, I don't think that that's probably going to happen this season, but, like, I, I think that's what we've known about them all along. I don't think this changes any of that. What do you What do you make of the whole dynamic of... Mercedes saying like bringing those kind of developments mid season, but simultaneously alluding to the fact that, well, if they didn't have a budget cap, they'd bring a totally new car, you know, a different design concept. Like, do they think they stick with this? Do they think they uh, modify? Do they stop at some point developing mid season to look to the next year when presumably they might be lower down in constructor standings to get more wind tunnel time? Or do you think they keep trucking ahead? I generally have an observation. I'm tired of team principals talking about the cost cap. It's there. We get it. Stop talking about it. Horner beats the drum of like, oh yeah, we're penalized. So we get limited in how much we can release. we got to be judicious. Other teams are going to catch us. Like, don't care. No, thanks. Don't care to hear Toto talk about how many different versions of the floor they'd have already pumped out if they didn't have a, like, I don't care. It's a reality of the sport. You're experiencing it like everyone else, like shut the hell up and just work within the constraints. Like, it's affecting everyone unilaterally. And the fact that you designed a bad aerodynamic philosophy and now have to make up for it puts you no worse off relative to Red Bull than you had before. You just are burning less money trying to do it. So, like, I, to me, it's a complete moot point and a distraction from the broader issue, which was you just picked the wrong philosophy. Now you got to pivot and then you got to start getting it right on a faster basis to catch Red Bull. And that's the job. And guess what? In the turbo hybrid era, in the Mercedes series of dominance, it took Red Bull six years, seven years, eight years, but they finally, they did eventually catch up and they got their driver a world title in the last year of those aero regulations. So you can't tell me it's impossible. It might just take a really, really long time, but it's not impossible. Maybe they need to go like Aston Martin and go hire a bunch of ex-Red Bull aerodynamicists and get them through their garden leave and actually get some good ideas in house. Like it just might take a long time. No, they don't want to do time. that. That would be yeah. admitting defeat. The, 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 the impossible line that can't sell politically is Toto may recognize that it's a five-year project, but he can't talk about it because he doesn't have a driver who has five more years in him. So, and I get it. That's a difficult line to toe. So you, you almost by extension of that have to be more optimistic than is appropriate to serve your drivers. That's what he's struggling with.
Well, so following up to that, Ferrari, fourth in constructors, Signs finishing fifth with Leclerc in seventh. The big news being Leclerc crashing and qualifying, causing the red flag, almost identical crash to the one he had in practice. Signs fell back from third place on qualifying. Meanwhile, Leclerc uh, came up from from well, I guess it was sort of an equivalent equivalent finish. But with that qualifying crash from Leclerc, I mean, what's your take on his all or nothing approach? And does he or the team need to? to change something to sort of maximize the the collective outcome of the team. I mean, yes, they need to change a lot. <laughs> um but I think I guess specifically related to Leclerc. There's not- yeah, the micro question on Leclerc is I think the important one, which is I think he's dangerously close to classifying himself as a one trick pony mm. as a driver. And that one trick is having an all-out fastest lap that has a really high upside and a really low downside, which is the type of driver that doesn't win world championships over the course of a season. Um, that sucks. Like, and everything you're saying about Max, about being a machine and about being ruthless and relentless, just lap after lap after lap, like, that is the that is not what Leclerc is. You know, he's more of a flash in the pan style. And um, I like Leclerc. I do as a person. Um, and as a musician. He, and as a musician. Uh, he's kind of like the Jordan Spieth of F1. He wears his emotions on his sleeve. He gives candid responses. He accepts ownership for things when they don't go well. He seems to be good to his team. He's not a prick, but like, yeah, he. I, I think he's officially on one trick pony alert. And look, I, I would I guess I wouldn't go as far to say he's a one trick pony because I do think he does well in races. I think he has pretty good race craft. I, I think it is a matter of s- the team setting realistic expectations with him. And it feels like his goal is to get pole because he knows the car can get them on pole if he is on the absolute limit. But over and over again, I mean, as evidenced by the number of polls compared to the number of race wins that he has, which is like 20 to four, right, in that ballpark. I I, I think the expectation needs to be established that we are currently not trying to win races. We are trying to maximize our position in the constructor standing. So you do not need to qualify on pole to achieve that outcome. And right now he's trying to maximize his qualifying and starting position, which is largely negligible because he's going to end up in at least third position anyway. And so if the alternative is qualify third and bring the car home and finish third versus maybe qualify first or maybe qualify seventh or ninth is a different calculus. And I think he's just trying to do more than is necessary in qualifying and he's costing the team money and he's costing the team points but based on the occasional crash and therefore lower qualifying position. The car's just not there. I don't disagree with that, but I don't think he's doing that specifically in response to what he perceives the car's strengths to be. I think he's doing it as an outflowing of just purely his driving style, which he's unable to adapt. And that's the I mean, maybe it's some of both, but I do think he acknowledges the fact that this car's really good in qualifying and the pace is there for me to get on pole. Well, what else is he going to try to get on pole? But I... 
I, I don't think he, I think it's a false equivalence to say that that that's the only reason why he would want to get unpolled. I think he just wants to be unpolled generally. Who doesn't? Doesn't matter if that's the only thing the car is good. Agreed. At. But again, I think it's the short-sighted nature that he has of well, I'm going to try to maximize this little thing versus I'm trying to maximize the season and then each race. And, and right now he's putting qualifying over that because he knows the car has the potential and he feels that, but it doesn't translate in race and it increases the risk level that he's taking. Whereas sure, Signs doesn't get on pole, but he finishes the race. He's leading you in sometimes. the driver's cha- championship now. Well, right now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but again, that's the nature of a lot of drivers are doing that calculus. They're not doing it to the 99. They're not pushing it to the 99th percentile and they're bringing the car home like they should. And Leclerc's not running that. He's saying, well, I'm going to go to a hundred. Yeah. And maybe that means I get pull or maybe that means I crash. And I think that is just detracting from his overall standings and is ultimately hurting the team at this point. Yeah. And I guess my question is, I think he's, we've known this for a long time and he has not adapted. And so I think that's why you ultimately have to put him on one trick pony alert because yeah. it's not like this is the first time this is happening. He's had a lot of off seasons to evolve and think about it, you know, and on a similar timeline, Max has evolved his racing. It's style. just like, he's gotten the bigger picture. And I just, it seems like yeah. Leclerc has not captured the biggest, pic- bigger picture. Well, then that calls into question my belief in his ability to do that. And I, I think it's a I'm driver not, maturity question, not an ability thing. It's a does he have? But the at the end of the day, to, those the, those lead to the same outcome. So they're really any different. Like I, I don't know. Well, a team with less debate about how good they're performing or where they could land. McLaren finishing seventeenth and nineteenth and <laughs> qualifying sixteenth and nineteenth. Play the Leclerc song again for the reading of this. Despite one. despite them sitting tied for fifth with Alpine currently in the moment in the points. I mean, we don't really need to spend much time here, but I mean, horrific weekend. Kind of a for you in particular. A they are who we thought they were moment. Um, and yeah, we'll see if they how much longer they can hold a position in the top five or six or seven teams on the grid with weekends like that. Meanwhile, Alpine, a real turn of fate from really the first four races in which they had mechanical failures, driver errors, finishing this weekend with a double points finish for, I believe, the first time this season. Uh, Gasly eighth, Ocon ninth, now tied for fifth with McLaren with 14 points. I mean, well off the pace basically uncatchable to Ferrari at this point, who is the next closest with 78 points. Um, But prime to pass McLaren at this point, but yet a lot of articles chatter around the overall dissatisfaction of leadership at Alpine um, coming down on Otmar. I mean, what's your take on all this sort of leadership chatter of Alpine not cutting not cutting it so far this season. Do you think that still holds after a weekend like in Miami? And do you really expect them to do much? Did you really expect them to do any more than fifth place this year, given the the surgence of, of uh, Aston Martin? To, to the question of Alpine leadership being unhappy, why wouldn't you be? <laughs> You've invested R&D into a car that should be way faster and producing way more points than it is for all the crappy reasons driver misperformance, team misperformance, misfortune on the track, drivers running into each other. Yeah, they've they've underperformed their car the entire season. So I I would be I would be shocked if Alpine leadership wasn't disappointed in voicing that in a very real way. So that is no surprise to me whatsoever. And um 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that this order in the constructor's grid for this race specifically is more indicative of Alpine's true pace, which is slightly slower than Mercedes and sl- and a significant amount faster than McLaren because the gap between five and six on the grid is is pretty large. So, yep. that's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to your point, sure, they're unhappy, but short of jumping any of the teams in front of them, I think they're going to end pretty much where you would have thought they ended given the the performance, the surprise performance of Aston Martin. Um, now that they lose probably 10 points a race up until this point and should have been 40 points higher, sure. But I, I think they showed the pace that they're on and sh- the, the level that they should perform at week in and week out, assuming, you know, engine reliability. Well, a team... Yeah. Can we skip straight to Alpha Tower for the sake of time? Yes, let's Unless hear it. Unless you have do something you... you really want to say about Haas. No, I mean, I Haas, other than shock for Magnussen, he needed this week. He was getting gaffed by Hulkenberg consistently, and he made the race super exciting. So, I mean, look ahead. He's on my personal podium. He had a great week. Uh, yep. So so props to him. But I, you have downplayed AlphaTari this entire season, so I am curious what you have to say. I just, I, I, I just genuinely want to ask and debate, like, how bad does Nick DeVries suck? How poopy is he? I so I, I think it's tough to say. My perspective is that he he was a victim of his own sort of preliminary success, right? Being with Mercedes, getting to drive a lot of cars, the great performance in the Williams in Monza, and I think he came into the season expecting I can show up and I can deliver at that level right out of the gate, and I think he is follow he is experiencing a similar thing to what Yuki did when he came in, which was maybe I have the pace, but I'm fucking up a lot. And it felt like by and large, this weekend is what he needed in terms of a very uneventful, underwhelming weekend by which you finish the weekend with basically no notoriety. He did that through practice, through qualifying, Albeit he sort of squandered that on the start when he ran into the back of Norris, but it, it, it he got through a race weekend, and so I think he just needed a a a a reset basically, and he needed a similar to kind of what we were talking about with the Claire. He needed to lower his expectation and realize you're a rookie. The first half of this season, first third of this season, is really really hard. You just need to survive. You need to have clean weekends. You need to bring the car home and the pace will come. So I think it's just hard to say at this point whether or not he's bad or not. I think it's just, he's a rookie. All the rookies are struggling. Your first races are Saudi, Melbourne, Baku, Miami. Like that's a really fucking hard lineup to have a high performing race weekends with minimal margin of error. And so- is he doing less than I would have thought at this point? Yes. But but I think he had a good reset this weekend, and you, now he just I, needs to gradually ratchet up the performance. And I we'll see if believe, he can or not. I can't believe you're characterizing a weekend where he crashed in qualifying and had the produced the only contact of the race between two cars as a reset. He was by far the worst performing driver on the grid this week when you consider the collective. The dude, the the onboard of him running into the back of Lando in turn one was like the shit that I do on the F1 game when I go like hauling into turn one from the back of the grid, you know, like 
and forget to brake. Like he just forgot to brake. Like there was no water on the track. There was no distraction. Lando was on he softer tires, I think, no, right? He literally just ran into the back of him. Like, <laughs> he just ran into him. And do you want to call this weekend a reset? <laughs> like, dude, what are you smoking? <laughs> he was, uh, was the worst driver by lining. far. No, <sighs> he's very poopy is the answer to my question of how poopy is Nick DeVries. He is extremely, he is porta potty poopy at this point. He's not good, and I'm 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 not going to be shocked if he doesn't make it to the summer break with Helmut wow. Marco at the strings of driver development and a hungry crop of Red Bull young drivers in F2 right now. I would not be surprised. But you think you think Ricardo is licking and his lips? I I didn't say. I literally I could pick three F2 drivers that potentially could be more suitable and more likely than Ricardo. But yes, between them and and Ricardo, I think that there's. There is no incentive for them to hold on to Nick DeVries. I I, I think they give be, him a bit more grace, but we'll we'll see. I mean, he needs it, to start showing incremental improvements. It, and, if, and if he doesn't show, what I'm saying is, I don't think I would characterize this weekend as incremental improvement. And if he doesn't show incremental improvement by the summer break, I think he's gone. All right, all right, it's fair. Well, how do you then? How do you characterize Yuki so far this season? In in contrast. He's making incremental improvements because he's showing consistency, which he hasn't shown in any other season of his career. And really good you know? racecraft. And good racecraft. And so, yeah, I mean, he's giving them reasons to to hold on to him, and he has to because he's in that seat originally because of Honda, not because he was a critical part of the Red Bull driver development program. And so he's going to get analyzed as well, but he's giving them more to reasons than DeVries is. Uh, and yeah, he hasn't DNF'd, and he's been in the points or on the edge of the points every race this year. Yeah, interesting. In a really, really shitty car. Like a well, really shitty car. Is it that car. shitty or, uh, you know, is Yuki just really good? Well, then what does is that say about the DeVries? performance of the car. Yeah, then I would say throw out DeVries and put in freaking, you know, uh, well, I am anybody but him, you know? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> well, that will be an interesting one to follow. With that, let's bring it home. DNF of the week. Who did you have? Uh, DeVries, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I think he's the only viable option because he's the only guy that damaged another person's car. Um, maybe Charles Leclerc, honestly, would be a fair one. I think it's it's tough but fair. Um, but if you define DNF by like the amount of performance they squandered based on their own mistakes, I think it's hard to to pick anyone other than Leclerc. I mean, yeah, we didn't spend much on Ferrari, but. Signs, despite a good qualifying, basically squandered it. Speeding in the pit lane, albeit <laughs> you could argue yeah. he needed it because otherwise he was going to come out behind a mess of people in a DRS train. So, All right. uh, fair play. But I would go McLaren. Horrific weekend. Can't get much worse. Might be who who they are. How about personal podium? I personally had Magnuson. I, I thought great in qualifying up in fourth. Awesome race, actually battled people consistently throughout, finished in the points, and did what he needed to do to kind of answer some questions about the comparison to, to Hulkenberg this weekend. You're not going to like this, but I'm going to say LL Cool J. You know, hadn't heard from him in a while. <laughs> haven't heard from him in a while. I thought he embraced the spotlight. Good on him. Good for the brand. Agree to disagree. <laughs> can I can I do our, since we're at an hour and 55 minutes, can I do our Imola preview in like three sentences? 
Please. Uh, narrow track, old school track, high on the nostalgia, low on the entertainment value, more than likely to rain, probably not going to be a lot of overtaking, probably another Red Bull one too. How was that? Correct. Albeit, I think you underemphasized the rain. I don't know if you've checked the forecast, but Friday, 97% chance of rain, thunderstorms. Oh, Saturday, 84% chance of rain, thunderstorms. Ooh, Sunday, okay. 90% chance of rain, thunderstorms. This is what Almost we to the point we might not have a race, but well, chance of rain, incredibly high. Rain race last season, made for a good one, albeit with the FIA waiting to start DRS many more laps than they should have. But if you were waiting for a rain race, this could be your week. I'm conflicted in the anticipation of a rain race with the reality that the FIA is potentially too much of a, you know what, to actually have a real rain race. So they have been hyper conservative this year. And so it's, it's a bit unfortunate, but time will tell. And if they move forward, should be a good one. We undoubtedly need another chaotic race it's australia it's been too long since australia so i it's only been two races but it's been seven weeks right (laughs) time but yeah seven weeks so we we need some chaos again agreed agreed well for a two-for-one special i think we were quite judicious on time and it was a blast uh another one in the books good seeing you my friend always a pleasure buddy peace